We are going to energize the country. We need to wake up and smell the coffee. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Barry Black, who's one of the Labour Party's candidates in the upcoming Scottish parliamentary elections for Aberdeen Central. Welcome to the podcast, Barry. Thanks very much for having me along. Uh, so the first question that I'd like to ask is, what made you decide to put your name forward for these elections? So the reality is that this election, um, the 2021 elections, is um, I wasn't going to stand um, at the sort of final stages of my, my PhD and was really this time not going to put myself forward. But the, the time came around December when initially the list selection opened. So in Scotland, we have the constituency vote and the list vote um, to put myself forward for the party list. And as I say, I had no real intention um, to do so. But over the past few years, my research has been focused on um, education policy, uh, particularly during COVID. I've been looking at the, the role of like learning loss and the government response and you know, what we maybe need to do to help young people come out of the pandemic and recover from it. And I just got to thinking that, you know, I think I have some ideas and a contribution that could be made that perhaps, you know, why not try and make it from inside Parliament rather than outside? So I was going to wait, you know, not stand this time, kind of see what happens in the next few years. But when the selections opened, I think, you know, the... The, the, the desire and the fire in me um, sort of came up again and put myself forward. So that's really how that came about this time round. Um, I have stood previously for the Labour Party um, in general elections, but um, in Aberdeenshire, so like the adjacent um, joining county to the city. Uh, and that's not normally sort of a fertile ground for the Labour Party. So, uh, you know, you could stand in that elections, you know, um, without much realistic chance that you'd be elected. So I guess there's less to think about if that makes sense on a personal level. But at this time, yeah, I just feel like the contribution is there to be made and that I could be one, you know, that could make it well. So that's why I decided to put myself forward this time. Mm. Um, now, you mentioned uh, education policy there, and as you mentioned, you're doing your um, in, in relation uh, to that. How do you think education policy going forward is going to be changed because of the pandemic, what do you think? What kind of impact do you think is going to uh, it, it's going to have on education So I think there are a few impacts um, that we're going to see. And interestingly, I think, like in many sectors, when lockdown came last sort of March, April, in in every sector there was this sort of belief that we're going to build back better. That the the new normal isn't going to be same as the normal that we had before the pandemic. There's going to be all this recovery and effort that could be put in. And now as it's dragged on, I think we're at the stage that everyone want, just wants some sort of normality back. So I think the conversation's almost moved to imagining a post-COVID education system to, to one now that debate is much more focused on how do we get schools to look like they were before. But I still maintain that the sort of the normal that we had before the pandemic still didn't work for enough young people. Still far too large and stubborn an attainment gap. There's far too many opportunities and life opportunities missed in the education system for young people, particularly from disadvantaged backgrounds. And what I'm going to think we're going to see um, um, initially is there's going to have to be a real effort to re-engage young people with learning. So that's maybe not 
um, about you know school time. We we seem to be getting caught up in this debate about how young people catch up and keeping them in school more. Uh, and I can't think of much worse for sort of mental health and social re-engagement. So the first focus is is clearly I think going to have to be on this. Young people haven't seen their families and friends, you know, for large periods of the of the previous year. And you know, I don't think the priority is getting back to to, to times tables and uh, uh you know, it's got to be much more about that well-being sort of integration into the curriculum. But I will think we'll see big changes as I think large elements of online learning will be here to stay. Um, although I'll, I would argue it's not been fast or quick or expansive enough, we have got greater amounts of digital technology now involved in classrooms, of course. And there's no reason why that can't be a benefit, um, you know, for people staying. Uh, and I genuinely think we're going to see in Scotland anyway, but perhaps in England, but we're now going to see changes to how we actually assess young people. We saw through in Scotland and England, uh, Wales and Northern Ireland as well, the, the statistical moderation of exam results last year that was a disaster in every single nation. Uh, we've been still looking forward to how these things will be done this year. And I think there's going to be a realisation coming out of this pandemic that perhaps the, the race to one exam day at the end of a course perhaps isn't going to be the way that we, uh, um, you know, we assess young people. So I think we'll see a, a big change um, there as well. Uh, and, and more longer term, I think when we look at the effect of the pandemic, if you like, the effect on people's mental health, potential learning loss that will have actually happened, uh, we perhaps won't know those effects really for, for a few years down the line. Uh, you know, I think it's very hard to measure uh, to a percentage point or to a you know, a proportion the 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 learning loss that will have happened. Uh, but as I say, there's a big debate to be had about how we deal with that, how we reintegrate that. And uh, I'll certainly be on the side of the debate that's looking to to reintegrate young people socially, uh, to look at their well-being, to reintegrate them into the classroom, rather than debate that almost seems like a runaway train at the moment that we need catch-up lessons and keeping young people in school longer, uh, which I think will be very detrimental. So I think. Uh, we look at this sort of new normal. We're still on the cusp, really, of whether it'll be building back better or building back to the normal that we had before. Uh, and I think what way that goes kind of remains to be seen, almost. Yeah, um, and of course, education has been one of the things that um, the S and T have very much been criticised for the way that they've handled education. How do you think, in particular, they've handled education during the pandemic, and more in general, how do you think that they've handled the pandemic in comparison to a uh, UK government? So on education, I think we've seen, um, and you know, this, this genuinely isn't a partisan point, although, uh, but the, we've genuinely seen uh, big mistakes of the biggest decisions all the way through. So we had uh, a plan for statistical moderation of exams that they were told for months was going to be a disaster. It ended up being a disaster and they had to U-turn a month later. They had a plan for blended learning that was well-developed, that teachers worked over the entirety of the summer for, uh, that was then scrapped the week before uh, to move to reopen the schools fully. Now, either of those decisions could be correct, but it was the, the changes uh, to teachers and all that preparation that was really the, the, you know, the focus of the problems and that we saw there. Um, throughout this school year, teachers um, routinely have felt unsafe within the classroom, not equipped with the correct PPE, um, we had a range of lockdowns in different localities when schools were open. 
and then a resistance to cancel exams at that point that went on and on until they eventually were in December. And even now, with um, the assessment this year, particularly looking at uh, senior phase pupils and exams, we're still seeing a sort of dragging of heels of how that's going to look, the workload that teachers will have to do to make that happen. So I, I think a lot of the problem has been around communication and clarity and sticking with decisions and seeing decisions through, um, to be honest. Um, and, the, and the pandemic generally, um, I don't think that same uh, criticism of communication and clarity exists. I think the communication and, and clarity from uh, Nicholas Sturgeon compared to Boris Johnson, for example, has been night and day. But many of the key decisions have been similar and led to similar results. If you look at uh, what has happened with the lack of PPE and in, in care homes and, you know, sending and infected people back into care homes. Um, there's been a, a big sort of shambles this week in Scotland around the quarantining rules for international travellers. Uh, so at various points, we've seen uh, mistakes as well, a lot the, along the similar lines that we've seen in the UK. And, you know, very open to, to saying it's learning as we're going. Uh, but it's quite a, an interesting dichotomy because I think the communication from Nicola Sturgeon has been very good over the course of the pandemic. But in schools and education, I think it's 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 really been a disaster. And it's really led to, uh, to a, a lot of um, late decisions, U-turns and poor decisions. Um, now, of course, um, because of coronavirus and because of well, regarding social distancing and that kind of thing, uh, I imagine that uh, a lot of your campaigning has had to be uh, more online than it would be otherwise. Um, how has that been? And do you think that this is something that we're going to see of more of in the future, even when coronavirus is dealt with, more of an emphasis on online campaigning? Yeah, it's, it's a very interesting one, I think. I think it was a settled view for a long time until recently that it was going to be a delay to the election uh, for, for that reason. I think previously when foot and mouth was a thing, uh, the, the election in Scotland was delayed by a month because speaking face-to-face -to, -face to voters was like recognised as a, a part of the democratic process. But uh, I think it's fairly clear now the election will go ahead. So where we put a lot of em emphasis in is to social media, uh, your Facebook advertising and that sorts of things. But you can only reach so much people, um, of course, with that. And what has been important as well is phone banking. Uh, so, you know, just the same as sort of door-to-door -door canvassing, but just on the phones. But the only issue with that is, again, it's only a certain selection of people that you can, uh, you can hit. A lot of younger people like myself don't even have a house phone. It's even fewer people who will answer their house phone. And if every political party is doing this relentless phone banking, it gets to the point where, you know, voters aren't going to answer. So that's a real um, challenge as well. The other, the other difficulty has been not being able to leaflet, which is usually a fairly mainstay, uh, you know, part of campaigning, just handing out your literature through doors. Now, thankfully for this sort of Scottish general election, we'll be able to, you know, use the Royal Mail free post and things. But it's what gets a lot of activists going. It's what a lot of activists who are involved like doing, walking around your local area, talking to some people and putting out leaflets. So it's, it's very different. It's quite frustrating. You can't get that face-to-face -face conversation because I think they're far more meaningful than one over the phone. Uh, but we're just trying to have to be a bit more inventive. What then becomes even more important is this sort of idea of the air war. So, you know, what's happening in the press and what's happening in the sort of national, the national media. Uh, and that's a challenge, particularly for the Scottish Labour Party at the moment, because we're still selecting a leader for uh, the run-up to the to the election. So we haven't really had a chance yet to dig in that 
that message of kind of what we're going to be about going through the election. So we're going to have to very quickly catch up on that um, from the end of February. So it is frustrating, um, but we're at least we've got the clarity now that the election will go ahead and that, you know, there's not going to be any face-to-face -face campaigning. So you can kind of plan for that and, and just try to have to be inventive in different ways. But it, it is a challenge. And I, I think it will make sure that in the future that these more digital uh, techniques are going to be more ingrained than they already are, um, even. Um, now, you mentioned uh, the Scottish Labour leadership election, which results of which will be announced on the 27th of February. Um, what impact do you think this uh, leadership election, the lack of an incumbent leader, has had on the campaign so far? And what impact do you think, regardless of who the candidate is, a new leader of Scottish Labour uh, will have on the general election? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, the leadership election can certainly, it can be seen as a distraction sometimes, you know. So on the big issues people may ask you about, there's maybe, you know, a, a settled policy or line. Well, so we're all generally in the same place, of course, because we share the same sort of political philosophy and ideas. But yeah, it leaves you with a, a, a figurehead, I guess, for this month of the, the campaign. But uh, what I think it is a positive, um, our previous le uh, leader, Richard Leonard, uh, I really, really like Richard. I think he's a great guy, but he just didn't have the recognition, um, you know, the, the name recognition and the cut through um, that you need uh, in the in the run up to um, an election. So I, I don't think it's the case that we've lost a really well known leader, and now we're picking a new incumbent. Uh, so I think a, a bit of that is um, lessened in terms of a risk, and hopefully, because it will be a short, sharp campaign for the new leader, they'll get elected at the end of February, elections at the start of May. It's got a short, sharp campaign, but it's maybe a chance to, to get in quickly and make an impression quickly. So there's a, a potential benefit to it as well, although it does leave this month a bit in limbo that we're talking to ourselves, we're campaigning amongst ourselves and rather than to the public. Uh, but I, I think it was a necessary thing for us to have any chance of making a dent in this election, to be honest. Mm. Um, now, uh, one of the issues that, of course, will be at the heart of this campaign will be uh, Scotland's relationship the rest of the United Kingdom as a union as a whole. Do you think that the SNP's emphasis on independence is a means of plastering over some of the failures that it has had domestically? Yeah, I think so. I think the SNP, um, you know, by its very nature, is a, a broad coalition of people who believe in Scottish independence. And, you know, it perhaps doesn't have one shared sort of political philosophy um, rather than its want for independence, which is fine. You know, that's that's uh, that's its role, that's its aim. Um, so I, I certainly think that uh, that hope, that aspiration for independence, you know, can keep the party together very well uh, and can provide a focus for it when it comes to elections. Um, because you know, a lot of people will vote for the SNP because of, of, of policies and record, of course, but, you know, it attracts a lot of support because of its belief in independence, because people do as well. So I think... Um, you know, that that is key. And that's where I think the opposition in Scotland, the Labour Party included, have failed over a series of years, is that I think there are major failings in sort of domestic policy in Scotland, but we can never make that the key issue over the, the argument about Scotland's relationship with the union. And that's probably the key task of whoever wins the Labour leadership, and to be honest, to, to really make sure that that's the key issue um, in Scottish politics. It might not happen for this election, to be fair, but you know, going forward, that 
really has to be the aim because that's how we're going to improve things, I think, uh, you know, in, in examining that record and, and, and trying to, you know, make changes to, to make, make things better. Um, now, uh, recent polling out, I think, last month that found that um, a majority of uh, Scottish electors uh, favour independence but would still think that it would have a um, financial impact on the Scottish economy. So, so this would suggest that for a lot of people, independence is more of an a motive argument than necessarily an economic or, or social argument. How do you think that you counter an emotive argument? How do you present a uh, pro-union argument that has that kind of emotive pull that for some people, Scottish independence has? Yeah, it's a really good question. And, you know, I, I don't believe in Scottish independence, but if I looked at the evidence and I believed that the evidence showed me that it would make Scotland a fairer and more prosperous place, then I would back independence. I just don't believe that's, uh, you know, what the evidence um, suggests. I think the, the strength and security and the sharing of opportunity and risk, you know, we can pull and share resources across the four nations, has benefited Scotland, benefits Scotland, and will continue to benefit Scotland. But I think the, the, the example that you draw out is a really interesting one. I believe that the no side won the, the 2014 Scottish referendum on arguments around the economy, uh, you know, on arguments around the future of currency, the strength and stability of the United Kingdom, and so on and so forth. Whereas, as you say, it suggests now some of the polling that it's it's becoming a, an argument about values. And I, I think the, the motive argument around in, in the UK is absolutely what I was saying about the, the sharing of, of those resources, sharing of opportunity and risk, you know, can be as a motive an argument as it is economic. The issue is, is that in the short term, you look at it and you're looking at Nicola Sturgeon versus Boris Johnson. And, you know, whose, whose values are you going to align with? It's, it's, it's fairly obvious, uh, um, you know, if you're into... Sort of progressive, uh, you know, outward-looking politics. It is the values you're siding with isn't going to be Boris Johnson's necessarily. But what I think about how you counter that is you, you get back into the economic argument because I think it's the real day-to-day -day thing that, that matters. What is the plan for our currency? Uh, strength and stability of the central bank. We're going to join the EU after independence, and that's fantastic. But what's the plan to do so and so on? Um, and you know, pull it back to there. It's, it's a difficult argument to make, but, you know, Nicholas Sturgeon and Boris Johnson are time-limited, whereas, you know, independence is forever, you know, if it, you know. Uh, but it's a very difficult, uh, it's a very difficult uh, place to be in where, you know, that's the, the two leaders of the two countries, Labour aren't in power anywhere, you know, so uh, it's, a, it's a difficult place for us to be. But if we go back to our roots about uh, solidarity, about, uh, you know, internationalism about pooling and sharing and resources then i think you can find a motive arguments in those economic arguments if that makes sense mm. uh, but that that polling that you mentioned is a it's a interesting because it shows that the debate is is moving on or has moved on slightly from where we were in 2014 i think um now uh, the obviously labor party uh, uh has had a, a new leader not that long case farmer uh, replacing Jeremy Corbyn. And Jeremy Corbyn had um, some problems in terms of cutting through uh, in, in Scotland as well. What do you think Keir Starmer has to do to make more of a uh, definitive impression in Scotland in order, of course, Labour needs to uh, win seats in Scotland to uh, form a majority? What, what do you think he can do to make more of a, uh, 
a clear impression on the Scottish flight. Yeah, I think he's. I think he's had a good start. Um, I think part of the problem is, if you almost flip the question, is we need a strong Scottish Labour Party to be able to for Scotland to be able to start making an impression uh, in Scotland. Then, then you know, thus allowing Keir to do so as well, and hopefully, you know, the new leader, whoever it may be, I'm I'm backing in Asarwar, but whoever it may be, I'm, I know they'll be able to make a, an impression and just get a relevance back in Scotland that we've actually been missing for a few years now. I think Keir's made a, a very good start in talking about the redistribution of power across the UK, uh, looking at a sort of constitutional convention, working with Gordon Brown to, to look at how the UK should work now, you know, and that's about more Scottish devolution, yes, but also about different regions of the UK. And, you know, actually having a, a view of how the UK should operate in the sort of 21st century. Uh, I think that's a really good start, but for that, ideas to be able to, I think, to take hold against a sort of, you know, hard unionist sort of pro-independence uh, uh, binary, then we need a, a relevant, you know, uh, impactful uh, Scottish Labour Party. And I think Keir, um, as I say, has made a good start. I think will absolutely help with that mission because I think it resonates well. Um, but what we're missing, I think, is the, you know, the actual Scottish Labour Party to be fighting fit uh, in order for here to be able to come in behind that, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, and of course, we've uh, discussed Brexit as well and the impact that that uh, will have uh, on, on, on Scotland. Do you think that we're beginning to see some of the impact uh, coming through now? And how much of a part do you think Brexit is going to play in the campaign? So, yeah, it's, I think it's one of the, the key issues still on, on people's heads. I'm a son of a fisherman who retired just before Brexit, but, um, you know, Peter, Peter Head's fish market just north of Aberdeen, you know, many of his old old uh, old workmates were either out of work, the boat tied up, the fish market empty, uh, partly, of course, because of the pandemic slowing down, but mainly because of Brexit and exporting. Uh, so having a, a real sort of impact, I think, uh, and you can see that locally with, with regards to fish and agriculture, as I say. So I think it will um, be on people's minds. I think, unfortunately, because uh, you know, I've, I've voted Remain, I still want to be part of the EU. But I think the argument's perhaps passed now. I don't think in the campaign, perhaps we're going to see much of a Remain-Leave dichotomy. I think that more feeds into potentially the independence argument. Uh, but I think the, the concerns of Brexit and what we need to do to overcome the difficulties that it's caused will be part of the campaign, absolutely. But, uh, you know, unless threaded through the Scottish independence argument, which I think there's large problems with uh, in saying we could, you know, automatically remain, for example. But I don't think there's a, a binary sort of remain, leave issue now, if that makes sense, uh, in the, as simple a way as there was before Brexit had actually happened, you know, in sort of previous elections we've seen in recent years. I mean, do you think that in terms of the potential of uh, rejoining the European Union or perhaps being more closely associated with the European Union, that this is going to be something uh, that's going to be a longer term project for political parties and political activists who wish to see a, a closer relationship between Britain and the EU? Is this something that we're not going to see uh, fruits of uh, not 10 years, but maybe 20 or 30 years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm 26 now, and I, I truly believe, you know, one one or two generations' time we'll be back in the EU. Uh, I, I genuinely do believe that. I think uh, 
my and the, the younger generation than me will take us back in. But I do think it's a, a long-term project. And I mean, as, as I say, unfortunately, but I don't think it's a thing that will be in the next manifesto of, of, of many parties, you know, a referendum to rejoin the EU. Perhaps absolutely need to look at as close as links as possible with the EU uh, and then, you know, make that argument back. Uh, but yeah, I don't, as I say, I don't think it, it's going to be the next sort of, the next parliament that will do it, for example. Um, now, of course, uh, one of the other issues that the pandemic has raised, but was already uh, on the horizon, is the climate emergency and um, shifting more to using renewable energy and greener energy and aiming to go for net zero carbon. How important do you think it is that the next Scottish Parliament makes uh, even more of a, a, an issue of climate change? And, if it's a, a Labour majority, would you be expecting a, a, a Labour majority to be pursuing more uh, investment in, in green energy and more support for the renewable sector? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, you know the UK and Scotland, we need to be doing much more, much quicker, I think, in terms of dealing with the climate emergency and getting to, getting to net zero. Uh, Labour for a Green New Deal are a sort of internal party group um, that have came to prominence over the past few years, I think one of the best examples of an internal sort of pressure group that I've seen, I mean, calling for a sort of Labour Green New Deal, a large, you know, try, trying to shift the economy into to green jobs and getting to net zero. And, you know, I'd absolutely be behind that if there was to be a Labour majority, which would take a big turn in the opinion polls. Um, but, you know, the Scottish Parliament has been quite consensual on this, but we do need to go harder and faster. And I think in, in Aberdeen, for example, you know, sort of the oil, oil capital, um, there's so much skills um, and expertise that exists within this city that can help us achieve that. And um, there's so much already sort of a, offshore assets and, that can be used to expand how far we can get wind energy, for example. There's so much infrastructure and skills, as I say, that already exists that can help us do that shift, do that just transition. And, you know, using... Um, and the, the oil industry really with us to to make sure that we can get there, uh, and I think it's it's something that's uh, a really exciting prospect. But it needs the investment, it needs the political will to be done. Uh, but I think it's got to be after you know dealing with the immediate impact of of, of coronavirus. It sort of has to be the, the the overarching thing that we need to be achieving together. Uh, I, I think the consensus exists um, for it. Uh, you know, we just have to kind of really make the emphasis to make sure that we're getting on with it. Uh, we're coming towards the end of the uh, podcast. It's been great speaking to you, Baron. I've got one uh, final question. Now, of course, we've discussed coronavirus quite a bit and its impact. And of course, because of it and because of the uh, current lockdown that we're all under, we haven't been able to do as many things as we normally uh, be able to do. But obviously, vaccination is being rolled out and things are slowly seeming to get better. When coronavirus is finally dealt with, uh, what one thing that you haven't been able to do are you most looking forward to being able to do again? Oh, that's a, that's a, a, re a really good question. Uh, I think definitely uh, being able to spend much more time with, with family uh, and friends I've not seen over the past year is the obvious one that I think is, you know, absolutely the forefront of everybody's minds. Um, but uh, I think this will be a even, an even longer term um, goal than even just after the vaccinations, but really looking forward to uh, getting a city break in Europe again. Uh, I, you know, got uh, 
one cancelled last year. Now it's been a while, so really looking forward to doing that with my partner or something. But I think the first thing on everyone's minds is, you know, just seeing friends and family again and really looking forward to that. Hopefully not too long, uh, vaccine rollout, uh, you know, continues apace and hopefully just as soon as possible we can do that with a nice cold pint in hand as well. Excellent, that sounds like a, a great plan and hopefully you'll be able to do it soon. Uh, for people who want to find out more about you and your campaign, where should they go to find out more about you and your campaign? Yeah, absolutely. The best one is uh, probably Twitter, if you don't mind pictures of cats and Aberdeen Football Club as well. But uh, that's uh, at Barry Black N-E. Excellent. Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much, Will. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast. Like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.